Hello to all of my Facebook friends and family. Nice to be with you today on this seventh day of March. It's a beautiful day in Tyler, Texas. It's a beautiful day always if you have a faithful relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm glad today. Hope that you're able to receive this message okay. We're going to be in chapter eight in these Sunday afternoon Facebook studies. We're going through the Gospel of Mark. Mark's rendition and version of the life and ministry and teachings of Jesus and, of course, his death, burial, and resurrection. Mark, as we have called it, is the action gospel. It's a very, uh, it's the shortest of the four gospels, and it's a very to-the-point kind of message. And so we find ourselves at one of those places in Mark chapter 8, similar to Matthew 16 and Luke chapter 9, where Jesus focuses his disciples, including us, on examining our hearts and asking us uh, some very, very difficult and important and significant questions. Nice to see you here, Pat Slade. Good to have you with us. Also wonderful to see my dear friends, Larry and Lynn Murphy. Glad to see you. Um, and also, of course, great to see uh, Cindy and Eric Mosley. Uh, I uh, want to wish you a happy anniversary again. Their anniversary, I believe, was yesterday. Love looking at those uh, pictures. Always fun to, for folks our age uh, to look back at those days uh, in the 70s and um, when we were um, just starting out <laughs> in our married lives together. And um, uh, what a blessing, what a blessing that is. Myron and Elizabeth, great to see you. My cousin Gail, others perhaps will be joining us either live or a little bit later as well. Remember, you can see these messages on my Facebook page. Just scroll down and you'll find them. Uh, you can also see them on our West Irwin Church of Christ Facebook page, our West Irwin Live Facebook page, and also on our website, westerwin.com, Irwin with an E, W-E-S-T-E-R-W-I-N.com, uh, and you can scroll over the, the link that leads to social media and other resources. Click on live streaming page. That's where you can get our services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. live, and that's also where you can get lessons like these. Uh, this one shows on there in that little blue box at uh, 6 p.m. on Sunday evenings. And then it goes to archives and scroll down from that big blue box, find video archive, click on that link, and you'll find all kinds of things, including several of our most recent worship services, the full service, and also uh, my uh, sermons are on there as well. Great to see uh, my dear friends, Lenny and Joe Allard with us from Arlington, Texas. Wonderful to see you. Uh, love you all so much. And my dear sweet sister, Bobby Fuquay uh, from Lackland Terrace Days. And of course, um, brings to mind our great friend and brother and preacher and minister, uh, Ronnie Clayton, who passed away this last week and his service will be live streamed from Hamilton Church of Christ from Hamilton, Alabama, uh, tomorrow at 11 a.m. Not sure if that's Eastern time or Central time, but uh, you can check that out at Hamilton Church of Christ on their Facebook page. And that will be where uh, Ronnie Clayton's uh, memorial service will be tomorrow. Our love and thoughts and prayers go to Karen and, of course, Jeff and, and Kyle and all of Greg's family as well. We just, uh, we're just we just very uh, conscious of all of you and what you have meant 
uh, to us. So Bobby, I'm, I'm really glad that you're joining us uh, today. Uh, uh, it is, if you want to find out a little bit more about Ronnie Clayton's impact on Bill and Joyce Allen, then you can scroll down on my Facebook page and, uh, and see some of that story along with a great picture. Um, Cindy and Eric's picture does look a little bit like Sonny and Cher from those days. And you can look at Bill and Joyce's picture uh, with our brother, Ronnie Clayton, who did our wedding, baptized us, was a great dear friend all these years and a wonderful missionary to India, a great preacher in many churches, a wonderful evangelist, as I've said, uh, much more like the Apostle Paul than anyone I've ever known or will ever know. And um, uh, and you can uh, you can see that <laughs> those pictures from the 70s, boy, they're fun. Um, and then the 80s come along and it doesn't get any better. So <laughs> um, but let's get going into Mark chapter eight, shall we? Let's get out of the 70s and into Mark chapter eight. In this chapter, once again, Mark confronts us. He's telling the story of Jesus, but he's confronting us with what we think about it and who we really think Jesus is. And this chapter especially, I think, it really brings it home as to uh, the nature of Christ, his role um, as he came to live and to die, and also um, what we think about that and what we think about him. That question is directly asked, who do you say I am? Jesus asks his disciples and he asks us today. So what do you see when you look at Jesus? Who? What kind of picture do you have of uh, the Lord, the Messiah, the Savior? And um, will you go with him? Will you follow him on the road that he's on? Will you follow him not on the road that you think he's on and think he should be on, uh, but on the road that he actually is on, the road to the cross? Um, so Mark begins Mark chapter 8 with a great story of uh, another miraculous meal. We saw one of these in Mark chapter 6. This one happens with a few different twists, but very, very similar uh, to Mark 6. Mark chapter 8, verse 1. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Well, uh, a few things about this. First of all, those of you that know me know I like road trips. Uh, we are, Joyce and I are chomping at the bit to travel up to Maryland uh, for a couple of reasons, the most important of which to see our wonderful daughter, Amy, and our wonderful son-in-law, Brian, and our magnificent, incredibly intelligent, beautiful, smart, amazing uh, grandchildren, Samuel, LMA, and Will. And, um, but another reason is, is that we want to take them some stuff. As you probably know, we downsized about a year ago, a little bit more than a year ago now, and have a lot of stuff that we've given away and a lot of stuff that we've given uh, to our, our daughters as well. And we have stuff ready to give to our daughter in Maryland, but that's a little bit different than just driving a couple hours to Arlington. Um, that's a little bit more of a requirement. And we were planning on doing that last summer and then COVID hit. And so that stuff is still in a storage unit, but it's gonna get there and we know that it is and we're gonna get there, we know that we are. But Joyce and I love to take road trips, whether they're little side trips, just an hour or two down the highway. 
Uh, most recently, we uh, uh, took a, a drive and spent uh, a night uh, just east of us uh, in Marshall and Jefferson and enjoyed a little bit of a getaway there. That was, I believe, just before Christmas. But um, we're looking forward to that trip, and I love road trips. And if you know me about road trips, then you know that I love to pack as much food as I can because that's, I think that's what road trips are about. You're supposed to eat. You're just supposed to eat. And, um, and so Jesus here, uh, all of these people have been on a road trip. They got, went on a road trip to see uh, this one who claimed to be the Messiah. But while they're there, Jesus is teaching and they're, they're there and they're listening. And perhaps some of them brought food, perhaps some of them didn't, but they're all pretty much out. And so the disciples tell Jesus, look, you know, uh, we don't have any food. <laughs> because Jesus says, look, you can't send these people back home hungry because it's too long a, too long a trip. And it's interesting that I think in, in between the lines, as you read this, you think of Mark chapter 6, and you think of the other instance where Jesus fed thousands, and now he's going to have the opportunity to do that again. And you can't help but wonder if the disciples knew that something like this was going to happen. And so they are kind of uh, suggesting Jesus feed them without suggesting it. And so Jesus asked them, how many loaves do you have in verse 5? Seven. They replied, remember in Mark 6 and John 6, it's five loaves of bread and two fish from this little boy's lunch. Here they have seven loaves. And, um, and so verse 6, he told the crowd to sit down on the ground when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks. And again, what a wonderful, it, it almost goes without saying. And yet that's what Jesus did. For every blessing, he gave thanks. Uh, he, he called on us to do the same, to remember the blessings that we have and to thank our great God for them. If Jesus could do that, we certainly can do that too. Uh, when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. A little bit of a forward look, if you will, to that great practice of the Lord's Supper that Jesus will institute the night before he dies and that the disciples and the church will begin to follow, uh, certainly in Acts chapter two, when the church begins. And they meet um, right then, they start meeting and they share meals together and they share worship together and they are committed uh, to what uh, Luke describes in Acts chapter two, to the apostles teaching, uh, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Uh, all of those things the disciples did from the very start, once the church was established. Here we hear Mark kind of alluding to that. Jesus taking that uh, bread that was offered far too little to feed to thousands of people, but giving thanks and breaking it and telling the disciples, okay, start handing it out. Verse seven, they had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also, of course, and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. So he starts with seven loaves and he ends up with seven baskets full of bread and of course a little bit of fish as well. Um, verse 9, about 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. Um, all of these uh, numbers are very interesting. They have thousands of people there uh, and there's only a little bit of food and Jesus blesses it and, and distributes it with the disciples' help. 
and has has a whole lot more left over than what they began uh, with, just as they did in Mark 6. Verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him. They asked for a sign from heaven. Um, he, sighed, he sighed deeply, verse 12. What a, <laughs> we reminded in little ways like that of the humanity of Jesus. Hebrews brings that out as well as any, any literature does in the New Testament, the humanity of Christ. But here we see it again, Mark, Mark realizing, and remember Mark is a very close associate with the Apostle Peter. Peter was there. Uh, perhaps Mark you know, may have been there as well. We read about him uh, and his family in the New Testament. Um, Jesus sighed deeply at their question, and we're going to see more of his frustration in just a moment. And Jesus said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. You know, I don't I have a lot of questions about some passages like this, because there are times when people show a great lack of faith and Jesus still provides healing. There are times when Jesus heals people and they don't even know who he is. Uh, and then there are other times where Jesus is um, is distressed at their lack of faith and disappointed to such an extent that he he goes ahead and leaves without doing uh, a lot of miracles. And that's that's what happens here. Uh, they're asking for a sign. We know in other places Jesus says, "Look, I'll give you a sign. It'll be the sign of Jonah. Jonah, who was three days and nights in the belly of the big fish, and that great Old Testament prophet, um, and and I will be in the tomb, basically, for three days and three nights. I'll be there, and I'll be, that'll be the sign. That will be enough. Uh, it's very similar to the par parable Jesus says, Jesus shares in Luke 16, that parable of the rich man and Lazarus, you remember, where they both end up uh, in the other side of this life. Um, in the grave in Hades, and the, Lazarus the beggar is in Abraham's bosom. Uh, the rich man is in torment, and he is trying to get Father Abraham to send Lazarus to his home because he has brothers who are still alive, and he doesn't want them to come see him. But that in that story, and remember this is a parable, in the parable Jesus has Abraham telling the rich man, no, there's, there's, there's no way that can happen because they, there's a reasons why. There's a, a lot of reasons why, but the main reason is they have Moses and the prophets. Uh, they can read their Bible, and they can come to faith, and they can avoid coming to this place where you are. And the, the rich man says, no, 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 but if someone rises from the dead, that'll impress them, and they'll, and they'll change their ways. And in Luke 16, in that parable, Jesus has Father Abraham saying, now, they're not going to listen to their Bible. If they're not going to read their Bible and follow it, if they're not going to listen to Moses and the prophets, then uh, they're not going to respond even if someone rises from the dead. I think that's a really significant story. I think that's a, we, we do a lot of things maybe that Jesus didn't intend for us to do with that story. But one of the things he certainly, most certainly did intend for us to get from that is that the word of God is enough. If you're looking for more demonstrations like these religious leaders were, show us a sign, show us a sign, show us a sign, as if what he was already doing is not enough, as if the inspired scripture is not enough. If you're looking for something more 
you'll never be satisfied and you'll never find it. Uh, Jesus says, look, uh, no sign is going to be given you. <laughs> you're not going to you're not going to find uh, what you need because what you need is unreasonable. You're not looking for a reason to believe. You're looking for a reason not to believe. And Jesus uh, goes on and and leaves them. Um, the religious leaders and the disciples still don't get it. And the question is, do we? Do we? And we hear that question again in the verses that follow, starting in Mark 8, verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Again, on a different journey, a different setting. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast, the leaven of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and they said, it's because we have no bread. <laughs> and maybe they're wanting Jesus to do this again. Let's see another miraculous healing, maybe in a little bit smaller setting. Um, verse 17, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Very important questions for us as we ask ourselves, just what kind of Messiah are we looking for? What are we looking for Jesus to do? What are we looking for him to tell us? Do you still not see or understand or your hearts hardened? Verse 18, do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Many times we read stories about Jesus, his teachings and him beginning or ending it with the one who has ears to hear, let them hear. Well, we say, well, I have ears, but I don't get it. Well, that's exactly Jesus' point. Are you willing uh, to consider these things honestly? Are you willing uh, to hear my message? Um, do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember, now he reminds them of the miraculous feedings that he's already done. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. We just read that story. He said to them, do you still not understand? So many times in scripture, starting with the Garden of Eden, God puts questions to us. And it's not because he's curious because he doesn't know. It's because he wants us to consider those questions and to ask ourselves, what kind of Messiah are we looking for? Uh, do we still not understand? Because we've got ears, but we're not hearing. We've got eyes, but we're not seeing. The religious leaders and the disciples still don't get it, and that's gonna become clear even with one of Jesus' closest disciples, the Apostle Peter, in just a few moments. But it's not just the question of do the disciples, do the religious leaders, do the people in the crowds, do they get what Jesus is doing? Do they get what Jesus is teaching? The question is, do you and I, do we? Are we challenged as we read the gospels? Because we really truly should be. We try, as we've said before, we try to put ourselves in the stories and we typically put ourselves in the hero spot of the stories and not with the faithless disciples and not with the doubting leaders. Um, but that's a lot of times that's that's not where we are because we're not hearing. We have ears, but we're not hearing. We're not seeing. We have eyes, but we're not seeing. And perhaps it's because we're not looking with those eyes or we're not listening uh, 
with those ears. Jesus challenges us and he says, look, are you getting this? Are you really getting this message of mine? Um, and so we see this illustrated in one of the most unique instances in Jesus' life, uh, a two-part healing, if you will, in Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him, of course, touching him to bring him healing and sight. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees or sticks walking around. Verse 24. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. My lovely bride, Joyce, just had cataract surgery, and so she's doing the drops thing four times a day uh, this week, and then she'll have the second eye uh, starting in you know, a week from this Wednesday, and we'll start it all over again. Um, but it's uh, it's been a very positive experience so far. She actually sees more clearly out of that eye, which was her bad eye, the worst of the two, the left eye for her. Uh, and and so it would be great if we could <laughs> get in the car and go to Jesus and have him just um, spit in her eyes, rub her eyes, and have her sight fully restored better than ever. Uh, of course, that's not where we are in the 21st century. But we're very thankful that we have such great, uh, wonderful medical people, medical uh, technology, medical science advancement that allows her to have this experience and to get this help. Um, in the first century, of course, they didn't have that, but they did have Jesus. And so some friends of this man who's blind take him to Jesus. And and uh, and so Jesus, they go outside the city because what Jesus is going to do, some would certainly question. But he spits in the man's eyes and rubs him a little bit and asks him, what do you see? And they would expect him to say nothing. But instead, he says, I... I, I see something. I see something. I see, I see people, but they look like they look like trees. They look like little stick figures walking around. We might say. Well, and of course Jesus rubs his eyes again, and now he begins to see clearly and fully. Um, and this is again a very unique story. Does Jesus not have the capability to heal the man? Well, of course he does. He could have healed him just by saying. May your sight uh, be whole. And that would have been it. Didn't have to touch him at all. Didn't have to go outside the city. Certainly didn't have to heal him in two parts. So why is that? That's a good question. Why is that? So you read the rest of Mark 8, especially, the context around this particular passage, and you ask, why is it that this happened? And why is it that Mark includes this story here? And what is it that I can get from this. Again, it's interesting that this man is not fully healed, just at a word from Jesus, just at one act. Um, John York uh, has written on this and in a, a wonderful book uh, entitled Preaching Mark's Unsettling Messiah, uh, with several essays from the book of Mark. And John York writes this, but the blind man is partially healed. 
It's the only miracle of its kind in the recorded life of Jesus, a two-stage miracle. It is remarkable, and I hope that you'll reflect on this some in the days ahead. Why is this? Why is this? And uh, Jesus, in other instances, heals those who um, cannot see. Blind Bartimaeus, for example, will read his story in Mark chapter 10. Um, and I think it may be that there's a clue offered us as to why it happens this way. And I believe that clue is in the verses that follow and Jesus' interaction with Peter over his spiritual blindness and ours as well. And so this great passage, let's just continue it on. Remember in the inspired writings, there weren't paragraphs, there weren't verse numbers, there wasn't even punctuation in first century Koine Greek as it was being written. That's something that's been added. I think it's helpful. I don't think it violates the inspiration and authority of the scripture at all, but I do think we have to remind ourselves that some of those breaks aren't uh, exactly um, uh, maybe in the right place. I was reading this week from a great little book called Unoffendable, and it is uh, just a, an incredible uh, book that's really challenging. And um, uh, and in this book, the author is talking about this very point, the transitions between chapters, and he reminds us in John 13 and John 14, that chapter break wasn't there in the original. The story just kept going on. I thought it was interesting that he chose that particular transition because that's where you go from Jesus talking about Peter's denial to Jesus talking about how he's going to prepare a place for all of them and he will bring them to be with him forever. Well, I think that puts uh, his words to Peter in a little bit different light and perspective, and it puts our failures in a little bit different perspective as well. And so let's read on from Mark chapter 8. After healing this man uh, and seeing him partially healed at first and then more and then being able to see fully and clearly, uh, verse 27 of Mark 8, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, still up there primarily in the general area of Galilee, uh, north and sometimes east of uh, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? Now, if I'm the disciples, I'm going to be really nervous, and I imagine that they are too. Uh, but uh, they replied in verse 28, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Remember, John the Baptist had been put to death uh, by Herod uh, because of his selfishness and, uh, and the desires of those around him. Verse 29, but what about you? Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. I think that's what Jesus does. He keeps prodding us. He keeps asking us. He keeps challenging us to challenge ourselves and to be honest with ourselves. What's the word on the street, Jesus says, about who I am? And so they give him some of the typical, you know, here are the things that uh, seem to be trending about who you are. And then he points the finger at us and he says, what about you? Who do you say I am? And that is the question of this chapter. Who do you say Jesus is. And so, of course, Peter, good old Peter, always to be counted on when things get too quiet, Peter replies, well, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. 
Christ, the Greek term for the Hebrew Messiah, which means anointed one, sometimes referred to kings that way, sometimes to prophets. But of course, the Jews throughout Old Testament times were looking forward to that one who would be the ultimate anointed one, the one who would be the fulfillment of what Moses talks about in Deuteronomy 19. God will bring you a prophet like me. You're going to listen to him in all things and not listen to any other prophet. It's the uh, response of the writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter one, when he says, God has spoken to us in lots of different ways through lots of different people and means, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Jesus is asking us that question. Do you believe that? Who do you say I am? It's a little bit less threatening when he's just asking us, what's the word on the street? What do people say? Some people, some places, what do they think about this? But then Jesus looks us square in the eyes and says, but what about you? Who do you think I am? Who do you say I am? And so Peter again replies, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. Uh, you're the one who was to come. Well, a second question that Mark 8 is going to ask is, oh, what does that mean? And I think that's just as significant as the first one. Who do you say I am? It's one thing to say Jesus is Lord. It's one thing to say he's the Christ. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. But it's quite another to ask ourselves, well, what is what exactly does that mean? And what does that mean to me? What does that mean about my life? What's different in my life? Because I believe that Jesus is the son of God. And is there a difference at all that that brings about? Well, the rest of Mark 8 is going to help us here. Uh, verse 31 of Mark 8, Jesus begins to tell them exactly what it means for him to be the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Mark 8, 31, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, mm -hmm. the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What a significant interchange here. Uh, it could not be more significant and it could not be more applicable for us. What, what do we believe about Jesus? Oh, he's the son of God. Okay, what does that mean to you? Because here's what it means, Jesus says. And he tells them what's ahead. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be forsaken. He's going to be falsely accused. He's going to be unjustly uh, convicted. And he's going to be crucified. And then on the third day, he will be raised to life again. Well, they they weren't going to have that at all. That's not what Messiah means. That's not what the Christ is supposed to be. You're the son of God. And just like all the people challenged him around Calvary, at Calvary, around the cross that day, telling him, hey, Mr. Big Shot, come down from the cross and we'll believe you. He could have done that. And that's what Peter thinks the son of God, the Messiah, the Christ will do overpower everyone with physical worldly power and that's what they the mob was saying 
at the cross. Hey, come down from that cross. Call those legions, thousands and thousands of angels to deliver you, and sure, we'll believe you. It's the same temptation that Jesus has had from the very start, from when he first began his ministry, and he prayed and fasted, and then Satan tested and tempted him with ways to demonstrate who he was without having to go the way of the cross. Throw yourself off the highest point of the temple and and uh, let people see the angels deliver you and save you. Uh, I, I can give you all this world's power and authority and glory without you having to die on the cross. And that's that's what we expect from a worldly Messiah. That's what we expect from a worldly king. That's not what Jesus says. This means, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so the second question, well, what, what do you think that means, Peter? What do you think that means, Bill? Well, we have our views, and Jesus says, well, let me tell you what it really means. It means that I will go the way of the cross. I'm on my way to Jerusalem where they're going to betray me. They're going to arrest me, and they're going to uh, have me put to death. And we say, no, 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 this will never happen to you just like Peter does. No, 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 no. You're the son of God. You're the Messiah. You're the king. This this will never happen to you. And Jesus' response is very telling uh, in verse 33. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Satan had been trying to uh, disrupt Jesus' path to the cross the whole time the whole time starting even when he was born and and jesus wouldn't have it and now he's using peter and the others even us and our inaccurate view of what it means to be great what it means to be king what it means to be the son of god now satan is using that against us to try to turn us away from the way of the cross. We're no different than Peter and the disciples here. We, we find it unbelievable that Jesus would go this route. That's not the route that he should take. But what becomes even more unbelievable is Jesus' call for us to follow him down that same path. Mark 8, beginning at verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. It's one thing for us to hear Jesus say, yeah, I'm going the way of the cross, but then he follows that up right away and says, and you're, if you wanna be my disciple, you have to come with me. You have to follow me there. And we think the way of the cross is this beautiful piece of jewelry that's all gold and, and valuable and, and looks beautiful and, and is wonderful to wear. And I think I love to see uh, cross uh, necklaces and cross earrings and crosses displayed. I have some in my office and uh, I love to see that. 
But we have to remember that the cross was an electric chair to first century people. The cross was a lethal injection. The cross was a firing squad. Uh, the cross was a way to be killed. And in the Old Testament, the cross was a curse. Uh, the Old Testament says anyone who dies by being hanged on a tree is accursed before God. Why? Because it was a criminal who, who that happened to. And that's how Jesus was put to death. And Jesus says, look, being Messiah, being the son of God doesn't mean I exercise my power. It means I give up my power. It doesn't mean I demand my rights. It means I give up my rights freely. Jesus would say in John chapter 10, as the good shepherd, he would say he lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes it from me. Jesus said, I lay it down to my own accord. And we realize that's true because at any moment he could have stopped it. He could have exercised power the way the world sees it and kept himself from having to die. But he wouldn't have been the savior. He would have been okay, but not us. And he loved us enough to be able to go through all of that. That's what the way of the cross is. It's denying self. It's not demanding the selfish desires be fulfilled, but it's rather voluntarily, willingly, um, even cheerfully, gratefully, being willing to say no to the self, being willing to do the things that were unselfish, that are in the best interest of someone else, doing those things out of love. Again, Matthew chapter 16 and Luke 9 both carry these same stories. And in Luke 9, Luke puts it this way. If you want to be my disciple, you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross daily, every day, and follow me. Uh, we're, we're servants of God 24-7. There's never a time when we are not acting out of honor and worship of Jesus Christ, out of obedience to his word. We do that imperfectly, of course. And that's what we're learning in the book of Romans as we study it on Sunday mornings. Constantly fighting the flesh, as we saw this morning for Romans 7. But the great news of the gospel is that's not what saves us, being able to overcome in all those areas, but rather giving ourselves to the one who walked the way of the cross first. And the only one who didn't have to do it. But he did it because he loved us so much. For Peter to suggest, for us to suggest some other road and path for the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, the King of Kings, is blasphemy. Because he came in order to die. And now he calls on us, his followers, to join him. Not in physical death, unless called upon to do that for the faith, for the sake of someone else. But he calls on us to follow him by willingly denying ourselves, saying no to our wants and our desires so that we can say yes to the needs and desires of others. Deny ourselves, starting with God, the needs and desires that God has for us in our lives, in his world today. To follow Jesus, to be his disciple, we are to deny ourselves daily, take up our crosses every day and follow after him every day. Jesus says, look, Peter, you think it's bad that this is my task? This is my path? Guess what? You get to join me. And so again, we ask ourselves these questions. Who do I, who do I think Jesus is? And, and what exactly does that mean? Uh, Peter responds, who do you say that I am? 
you are the Christ, and yet he has no idea what that means, any more that the man that Jesus healed could see people the way they really were. He saw them as stick figures, as trees walking around, uh, incomplete, inadequate. And, and that's how we view the Messiahship of Jesus Christ sometimes. When we realize that what that means is the way of the cross, that's when we begin to see clearly. That's when our eyes begin to see. That's when our ears begin to hear. When we hear Jesus saying, look, you want to know what it means to be the Messiah? This is it. This is it. It means denying yourself and taking up your cross every day and following me because that's what it means to be my follower, my disciple. And if you're going to do that, then you're going to be on the right path. Jesus is saying this, according to Dave Bland, your cut and paste version of me will not do. In fact, something about it is demonic, but it's a start. Jesus says, I can still work with it. Now stay with me on the road and we will continue to transform you and your images of me. It's a great, great statement. The most pertinent question is not, are we guilty of creating Jesus in our own image? The answer to that question is yes. At times we certainly are. But the question is, are we on the road with Jesus? Are we on the road to Jerusalem? Are we willing to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him? When you look at Jesus as we close out this lesson, what do you see? When you ask yourself, is he the Messiah, and you say yes, what does that mean? Really, what does that mean for you? What kind of life do you live because you believe that? Because you have trusted your life to the one who died on the cross. Do you see a stick figure, Messiah? Do you see your own blindness? Do you, do you believe that you can see and yet you really can't? Do you believe that you have ears to hear but you don't hear? Um, are you willing to acknowledge that and to say, you know, I, this world sometimes it, it has too much of an impact. The flesh, as Romans 7 says, sometimes wins the day. And I look to what's best for me and mine right now instead of what's the will of God and what's in the best interest of those around us. Are you on the road with Jesus journeying toward Jerusalem, allowing Jesus to challenge you and lead you? into a greater understanding of not only his cross, but yours as well. Again, quoting from John York, perhaps only those who know they are blind have any opportunity of seeing at all. And we hear that truth played out time and time again in the Gospels. Only those who finally recognize that what they at first thought was sight turned out to be just stick figure faith have any chance of that second touch. Jesus coming and giving us a greater understanding, a greater vision, greater hearing, a greater call and mission. Perhaps it is not about knowing, but about admitting that all of that abides in mystery. To know may mean that we know too much. I think as we learn more and more about Jesus and we become more and more aware of what the teaching of scripture is, we become more and more aware of our own inadequacy of our own lack of knowledge, not greater knowledge. And it's when we're there on the road to the cross that we realize that we're beginning to understand. We're beginning to mean not just what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, but for us to be his disciple. 
And so Paul calls us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to not, not play the game of the world, not be like the Jews who thought the cross was a scandal, not be like the non-Jews who thought that it was foolish to believe in someone crucified as a criminal. But for us, the wisdom and power of God, that's the cross. But it's not just for our salvation, it's for our lives calling us to follow him, to join Jesus on the way to the cross ourselves, to deny ourselves, to take up our own cross daily and to follow him. That's what it means to be the Messiah, as Peter said, and that's what it means to be the disciples today of the Messiah. May God bless us all towards that end. Thanks for being a part of this study.